welcome everyone to, to today's event. Uh, great to have everyone in such a full room for what I think is a really interesting discussion, really important discussion, how central and local government can foster collaborations with business and the social economy to drive levelling up. I'm Tom Pope, the Deputy Chief Economist at the Institute for Government, and I want to take this opportunity to thank Social Investment Business for making this event possible today, and it's great to have Hazel on the panel. One thing just to flag early on, Paul, we're hoping, will join later. He's currently speaking at another event, a bit of a diary clash, but we're doing our best to, to get him here. But we have a great panel to discuss these questions in the meantime, a really good uh, spread of experience um, and perspective. Now, the, the Trust Government has not yet set out its stall on regional policy. It's unclear whether the levelling up agenda, at least in the form it was, will survive. But what is clear is that improving the performance of UK regions outside of London and the South East will be key to achieving uh, national growth, which is a priority that Liz Truss has set out. But government can't do this alone, and an ambitious agenda to change the UK's economic geography will be reliant on the private and third sectors as well. And it will be crucial that the government incentivises, supports and collaborates with uh, other organisations if it wants to be successful in its regional policy. So today we're going to ask what policies the government should prioritise to help businesses and the social economy to support levelling up, and how government can effectively work on joint projects with them as well. So we do have, as I mentioned, a stellar panel to discuss this question. So we have the Right Honourable <coughs> Hazel Blears, who as well as being the Chair of the Board at the Social Investment Business, of course, brings a wealth of experience inside government, um, not, not least as uh, Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government. Uh, she was the MP for Salford from 1997 to 2015. Um, to my far left is Ed Cox, um, who will bring a combined authority perspective, uh, Executive Director for Strategy, Integration and Net Zero at the West Midlands Combined Authority uh, based here. And he was previously Director of Public Services and Communities at the RSA. He led IPPR before that, and I believe before that he worked for Hazel as well. So, uh, <laughs> great to have you, Ed. Um, and on my right, we have Sarah Williams, who's Chief Executive of the uh, North Staffordshire Chambers of Commerce, where she's been since 2011. She was previously Director of Enterprise at St Helens Chamber, and I know she has a lot to say, uh, say on how government can help business to get involved. So some final housekeeping notes just before we begin. This event will be on the record. Uh, there will be a sound recording available uh, on our website shortly. Um, that we'll be tweeting, live tweeting this on Twitter with the hashtag IFGCons22. Uh, so please do follow along there if you would like. Um, we're going to have plenty of time for questions after we've had some opening remarks and some discussion on the panel. So do be thinking about your questions as the event goes on. And when we come to questions, please do say who you are and where you've come from, um, and also wait for the mic so that we can hear your question. Um, okay, and with that, I'm going to hand over to um, Ed first. So levelling up is a national policy. Um, that's been the, the government's focus. But boosting regional economic performance is also a, a local problem, and in particular, combined authorities have been getting more involved in this. Could you say a bit about how the combined authority is, is working with businesses and social enterprises uh, in the West Midlands? Yeah, very happy to, to, to do that. But perhaps I should just sort of kick off, um, in the absence of uh, a minister, just to, just to say a couple of things about levelling up white paper, which I think, as West Midlands Combined Authority, we thought was a really excellent... Um, I don't know what you want to call it, an excellent uh, strategy document uh, in terms of the way in which it set out um, some very clear and ambitious goals around um, levelling up. And I'm very much hoping the Minister does come so that he can uh, reiterate his um, enthusiasm uh, 
uh, for the levelling up um, white paper. I think three things I'd want to mention about it. First of all, um, that it was very clear that it needed to be long-term um, and it needed to look at changing the whole system. And I think uh, at a combined authority level, certainly we recognise the importance of uh, long-term policy. Um, secondly, um, that it was devolutionary. Uh, and I'll come back to this in a moment, but um, the West Midlands Combined Authority, along with Greater Manchester Combined Authority, were designated as trailblazer devolution areas, uh, where we can go further and faster um, on devolution. We've been working very hard on that agenda um, since, since then, um, or since it was published in, in February. And again, I'm hoping the Minister will uh, uh, reaffirm the Government's commitment to that trailblazer devolution uh, deal process. We understand uh, that's still very much on the agenda for the current government. And then thirdly, and I think this is where this uh, session comes in uh, and is so important, is the role of collaboration, and particularly collaboration with business. And my expectation is um, that this government uh, in particular will double down on the relationship with the private sector. So I think it makes um, this IFG event particularly uh, timely and, and, and pertinent in that, in that sense. So... Um, really to say that I think the levelling up agenda is still very important um, and uh, the emphasis that may well be placed on private sector is key um, as well. Um, but I think it's important that we really make the case for sub-national bodies like West Midlands Combined Authority and other mayoral combined authorities um, in having uh, a really important role in relation to driving economic growth. We need to remember, and it's very easy to forget, that we are considerably the most centralised of all of the OECD nations, and that has a huge impact on our productivity as a nation. A huge impact on our productivity as a nation. All kinds of research and studies and so on that have taken place about weak productivity in the UK economy, but the fact that we are so heavily centralised is one of the critical issues there. And so um, we uh, think that the kind of challenge uh, and the opportunity that combined authorities offer is the possibility of tailoring policy, tailoring investment effectively to meet regional economic needs. Now, if I just um, illustrate that around energy policy, for example, um, the West Midlands has a disproportionate number of small and particularly medium-sized energy-intensive industries. And yet national policy is focused almost exclusively on supply of energy and the West Midlands doesn't do too much supply, hasn't got too many um, geographical assets to do that, um, and also um, on a government policy focused on very large firms that are energy intensive and in trouble, and so all of its schemes are targeted at big steel works and that kind of thing. What we need is something different in the West Midlands in relation to energy policy. We've got a burgeoning low carbon cluster, uh, we've got um, uh, ideas around and we've got the companies that are driving uh, distribution of energy, National Grid are based in the West Midlands, uh, storage, we're doing um, battery um, uh, recycling, we've got plans for a gigafactory in, in, in Coventry and smart mobility as well. So <coughs> our um, opportunities around uh, the energy sector are very different from those that national policy is focusing on. And so to devolve some of those um, uh, powers, policies, funds uh, to the West Midlands, we could actually make much better use of them here. National policy in that sense is too clunky. I could make a similar case around retrofit, where I've spoken to companies in the region who are desperate to get into retrofit and all the skills that that would bring for the region. And yet the problem is, at the moment, 
Bays are delivering little pots of retrofit funding uh, through competitive bidding on a very, very short turnaround time, and we cannot get that supply side uh, uh, mobilised. So that's why I think it's so important um, that uh, West Midlands Combined Authority, Greater Manchester Combined Authority um, are given this Trailblazer Devolution deal. And we've got about 30 or 40 proposals um, all set out in our prospectus uh, that set out the kind of things that we can do with the economy if we were to, um, if we were to uh, be given those additional powers and funds that we, that we need. But just to focus down on particularly on the business question that you're asking um, this morning, um, how do we incentivise private business? Well, I think there's a number of ways in which we do that as a combined authority. Firstly, there's the kind of question who to call. The fact that we have a directly elected mayor means that businesses can quite literally pick up the phone and be able to speak to the mayor or indeed the institution around the mayor, the combined authority, in order to uh, raise concerns, talk about opportunities and so on. Um, and so the mayor has this uh, really important uh, convening role as well, bringing together businesses with universities, local authorities. Um, we've got a regional business council, um, where again, we work very closely with some of the bigger and mid-sized businesses um, across, across um, the West Midlands. I think another thing that we do with come out combined authorities uh, to have really clear uh, mid-term, long-term strategies and plans. Uh, we've got a West Midlands plan for growth, um, which uh, has used an uh, evidence base to look at the eight clusters in the West Midlands that we think can drive um, the fastest and, and, and most productive growth um, across the region. And we've got business-led partnerships against each of those clusters to, to move them forward. We've got an innovation framework, uh, which particularly focuses on um, R&D and how we want to channel that and how we link businesses with universities. A net zero strategy, um, and also um, I know that um, uh, a lot of the focus today is on social investment. We've got a West Midlands um, social economy growth strategy as well, which looks at what do we need to do to mobilise the social economy um, in the West Midlands around particular clusters in Coventry, East Birmingham, Warsaw, um, and so on. And I think the last and probably the most important thing um, that the combined authority does is create the wider conditions for economic growth and for business. So uh, our responsibilities around the transport system across the West Midlands, uh, the skills system with the devolved um, adult education budget, and we'd like to go a lot further on skills devolution, um, and then wider coordination around particular investment sites. And of course, what we've heard in the last week or so about um, investment zones uh, is really important. It's, if you like, the latest um, in, in a, a, a number of ways in which we as a region try to pull together land, property, housing, um, other big infrastructure investments uh, in order to make it possible for um, businesses to invest in, in the region. So a range of things there that we try to do as a combined authority. Well, that's terrific. Thanks very much, Ed. A really uh, comprehensive look there. And certainly the, those things you mentioned on, on the white paper, the importance of focusing on the long term and getting the policy making structures right is something that we at the IFG would uh, wholeheartedly agree with. If I go to you next, Sarah, you represent uh, many businesses in the, in the Staffordshire region. Do you find that businesses have generally been keen to support levelling up over the past couple of years? And what do you think government needs to do to help them more? Um, yes, businesses are very keen. Uh, what uh, what uh, business wouldn't be keen on an investment in an area which is often deprived? For those of you who don't know, um, North Staffordshire is, and Staffordshire is the bit between the two combined two trailblazer combined authorities of Manchester and Birmingham, um, and we don't fit in either. 
Uh, yet we are part of the West Midlands, so the West Midlands Combined Authority doesn't actually affect the whole of Staffordshire, even though Staffordshire is part of the West Midlands. So one of the things I would say that government can do is create some clearer terminology about who's included in what, uh, because there are whole areas of support with the levelling up agenda which are going into the big cities and quite rightly, but are not hitting some of the areas in between, some areas like I represent. Um, uh, Stoke-on-Trent, which is the city in the middle of Staffordshire, is obviously one of the areas which has, um, as Ed mentioned, uh, uh, in, uh, energy-intensive industries. It's the centre of the pottery industry for the UK. We have over 400 businesses that are reliant on that, yet we cannot get a sensible strategy or an understanding from government about how some of the major issues that are affecting a sector like that, which include energy but also include free trade agreements, is really going to be played out in the levelling up agenda. And it seems to me that there is this mismatch between different policies and how they are going to affect local and regional economies, and that's an area that we're working on. But in terms of uh, answering your question, Tom, um, uh, yes, businesses are really keen to support the levelling up agenda. Um, Stoke-on-Trent got, I think, one of the largest uh, levelling up uh, pots of money, I think £60 million that came into Stoke-on-Trent, but it is, as ever, hidebound by what it can be spent on. Um, and my real issue, I think, with some of this is how do businesses get uh, a say in some of that, I'll come back to that in a moment, but also making sure that local authorities who've been hollowed out by cuts over the uh, uh, previous uh, few years, who don't have the skills, are finding it hard to attract the talent, are concentrating quite rightly on the issues that they have around social care, so are losing the capacity to deal with things like planning. And planning is going to be absolutely integral to making sure that the levelling up agenda is delivered effectively and the best decisions for the areas are made. So I think the levelling up white paper was a good start, there's some really good interesting stuff in there around planning and planning reforms which we will be really keen to see uh, delivered um, over the next few years. Well, this parliament actually. Um, so uh, businesses have a tremendous uh, sense of pride of place uh, where they are. Most of the businesses that I represent are family owned, they're not going anywhere else, they're not mobile capital, their workforce is local, so their sense of pride of place and what they need from levelling up is absolutely key to their economic success. So levelling up is really, really crucial. Um, to them. But they are also the businesses which are working in low wage, low skills economies um, and are desperate to attract the right skills and the right talent. Um, and I think that is an issue that um, we are looking uh, to address. From government's point of view, any of these schemes and any of these initiatives, it would be fantastic to have really clear targets. I absolutely agree with Ed. We need some long-term commitment to all of this, not chopping and changing, not little bits of money that are given to a high street and then another high street without any collaboration, without any understanding about how each of them are going to have skill, engineer, high, advanced manufacturing, engineering and skills centres, and yet they're only 10 miles apart. This is a waste of money and a waste of time um, and a waste of opportunities. And there needs to be some better coordination and a better understanding about how that can be done. Um, one of my um, big issues uh, really is around procurement. And I think that uh, the issues around um, what is going to happen in the new Procurement Act uh, and the way, way that perhaps social value is going to be dumbed down a little is concerning, not least because uh, that provided a framework in which businesses could work with social enterprises, could work with charities, voluntary sector, and develop that uh, integrated approach to dealing with issues that are faced around the area. Um, but also, that's how, how most of my members would define themselves. They are local. 
They care about their staff. They care about their local environment. They don't want to do things that uh, go against all of that. They want some support to do that. And procurement could be a really good way in which they could prove that. Prove that. And the social value weighting could be a really good way in which they could uh, prove that they are more than just employers, but they are absolutely integral to the economic development and regional development of places like Staffordshire. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Sarah. To you then, Hazel. So SIB is a body that supports social enterprises, has been engaged with the levelling up agenda, I suspect, long before it even had that name. Um, so what can government do to help, help social enterprises more? Yeah, thanks very much. I'm going to stand up so you can see me and I can see you. Um, so, uh, delighted to be here, actually. Um, a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, uh, I went to talk to the Northern Research Group, so it's becoming a bit of a habit. Um, I'm, I'm determined to stop, I think, probably, but uh, um, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I'm here with Social Investment Business and Nick Temples uh, with us, who's our CEO. Um, and I actually founded the social investment business when I was in government uh, with £400 million from the Home Office in the days when we had £400 million to spend <laughs> like that. Um, and so when I left Parliament, it was kind of a bit of unfinished business for me. Um, and they needed a new chair. Um, I've been there for the last six years. And when I first got there, it's fair to say, isn't it, Nick, we were struggling a bit, really. Uh, we'd got through most of the £400 million. There wasn't a lot left in the kitty. Um, and we were kind of um, working with reasonably small amounts, but actually with lots and lots of different social enterprises, community interest companies, the whole range of the social economy. Um, and I began to see how fragile and frail that infrastructure actually was because it didn't have the underpinnings um, that very often certainly large businesses have, that local authorities have. It was much more like SMEs, actually, Sarah, um, really struggling to keep going. Um, and so I was delighted this year um, when we bid for the Youth Investment Fund, um, which is a £368 million fund um, designed to transform the opportunities for youth services right across the country, both in terms of physical buildings, the, um, you know, the on-site youth zones, uh, fantastic facilities, but also there's, there's revenue funding in that as well. It's not just all capital, and therefore we can start to enlarge the social economy, particularly in the youth sector, which is, it's always been a kind of hand-to-mouth existence in that sector. Great dedicated people, but with virtually no resource to do the things they need to do. And for me, levelling up has to be under pinned by the lives of young people, that next generation coming through. And in most of our areas that are, are struggling, um, it's young people very often who have the brunt of that. They don't necessarily get great education facilities. They certainly don't get world-class youth facilities. They're lucky if there's a game of football you know, at the end of the street. Um, and so we've now got the £368 million. So we're almost back to the £400 million that I um, endowed to, to social investment business. And we are determined that we will make the best use of every single penny uh, of that money. I'm very conscious that that's public money. It's not government money. I've never believed there's any such thing as government money. It's actually public money, taxpayers' money that we're spending, and therefore we need to make it make it work. So um, we're, we're back on the track, and we are, you know, um, absolutely incredibly excited. Um, I was thinking about three things we could do. Um, to really grow the social economy um, to a point where it becomes a real player. At the moment, it's still quite a fringe activity out there after you've done the big business, after you've done local government, you know, after you've done um, all, all, all of the, the mainstream stuff. And then you've got the social economy. And, and I just think that's wrong. Um, the, the principles that underlie the social economy, which are about making a difference in the toughest areas, being prepared to, to have resilience and to go back again and again and make that difference, for me, that's 
what's driven me the whole of my political life. And I'm sure many of you in this room have been driven um, by the people who need the most. To some extent, the people who are doing okay, um, the people who are well off, the people who have got a good job, um, decent home, you know, a good family, all of that. It's the other places and those other people that actually need the intervention and the support of government and of business. Um, so I just think that this is a, an agenda that unites us across political parties. You know, there's, no, there's nobody that actually wants poor people to suffer. Um, there are different ways of addressing those problems, but I would say that if we can all work together, uh, we'll make a much bigger difference. Uh, and I think there's a, some practical things that government could do, and I hope that Paul um, has got somebody in the room taking some notes and uh, making this happen. Um, first of all, I would say absolutely, make social value mainstream. It's not a fringe. I took the Social Value Act through Parliament as one of the last things I did. I did it with Chris White, who was a Tory MP. Uh, he won the Willy Wonka golden ticket in the private member's ballot. Um, he'd never done a bill. He, he didn't know, know a, and he would be the first to admit he didn't know a great deal about the legislative process. I was a bit of an old hack by that time. Um, and so Chris and I teamed up and we took the Social Value Act through. I think it's um, eight clauses and one tiny schedule. I'd been used to doing home office bills with 700 clauses and 49 schedules um, and you know private members legislation hardly ever gets on the statute book because it just takes one MP to stand up shout object and that's your private members bill um, disappeared and we took that through every stage Nick Hurd who was a conservative minister at the time was incredibly helpful to us um, and I had I didn't really think it would grow into the kind of um, transformational piece of legislation which it actually has done from those eight clauses and one schedule um, and the government to follow that up uh, with policy procurement note 0620. I never thought I'd be excited by policy procurement notes, but I am. Um, because what that requires in, in, in every government you know, major contract, um, there's actually 10% in the award criteria for social value, which means the whole of the procurement supply chain has to use its brain, um, contact the community, consult with the community. What are the big um, priorities in your area? Can we put those in our bid and promise to deliver on some of that so we've got a better chance of getting the tender? There's nothing more incentivizes people than that they're going to actually get that tender. And if you think about government procurement, you know, that is billions of pounds every year. Um, I live in Cumbria now, and uh, I've, I've been helping the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority um, get some policies around maximising their social, economic and environmental impact. And I think there are three, three ways you do that. You do it through procurement. They spend £1.64 billion every year of taxpayers' money. So why shouldn't that expenditure actually not just be buying the goods and services that they need for nuclear decommissioning, uh, but actually making an impact in the communities where they operate? Um, they're a good place to start because they've actually got their own legislative imperative um, in the original Energy Act, which says that they have to work on behalf of the communities where they operate. That's partly because they were never popular. So if you're going to get um, a license to operate, if you like, for a business uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an area which is controversial, uh, then being able to put stuff back into the community um, is essential. They probably spend £20 million a year on community investment, both in place and in people, um, and that's a really well-established way of operating, and they've got it in every bit of their procurement now. So it is about procurement. It's also about who you employ and employing people who are furthest from the labour market and, and specifying that 
in your um, supply chain, in your contract awards. Um, and that's not just people who are unemployed. You know, DWP in recent years, I think, have been really you know, good on this agenda. And they've said that it is about care leavers. It is about veterans. It's also about people with hidden disabilities, um, autism, stuff like that. Very often, those people think differently and actually more creative and more productive uh, than, than others. So NDA now, I've done two big reports for them. Um, they've now um, accepted all the recommendations. They've embedded it in their mainstream business model. And that will continue to make a massive difference. Um, so I would say make Social Valley mainstream and all this talk, I'm afraid, from Mr. Rees-Mogg, I would love to sit down with him and just explain to him that this is potentially transformational and it doesn't cost the government any more money and therefore getting behind that is really important. The second thing I would say um, is why can't we bring together social investment, conventional capital and pensions for purpose to come together and, and that will build a pot which in those areas, like Staffordshire, uh, they don't necessarily have access to other um, forms of funding. You can bring that together, and it's incredibly powerful. And there is now the Impact Investing Institute. I'm a member of the advisory board. Um, they're working with a number of different areas, from Kent to the northeast, um, places that wouldn't normally uh, be in that, you know, top 20 authorities who are likely to get the big numbers. Um, and bringing together um, that conventional capital, they are desperate to get ESG. They haven't got enough capacity to meet their ESG targets. So coming together and doing placemaking with the local authority, Ed is absolutely right, uh, elected um, mayors are key to this because they're, you know, it's the leader, you know where to go to, uh, they can push it along. And I would say I've, I've you know, um, spent a bit of time with Ben Houchin um, do, doing the stuff in the northeast, and that is transformational. Um, he's incredibly ambitious for his community, um, but he's also you know, um, a very... Um, He's a, he's a very clever man, um, and he's determined to push that through. And the more that we can do that, in Cumbria, we've only just moved um, from having um, 12 district councils. We're now going to get two unitaries. Wow! Um, actually, if we had a single leader in Cumbria um, where inequality is absolutely rife, health inequalities, educational inequalities, you've got the beauty of the Lake District, um, and then you've got Barrow. Um, so uh, it's, it, it, it's very challenging indeed. Um, the third thing that, that I would absolutely do um, in terms of, of, of getting government to, uh, to take action uh, is to make social investment affordable. You know, big society capital have done a great job with the dormant assets, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds. But very often the terms of trade for that social investment mean that small organisations, community organisations, you know, they can't meet those higher interest payments um, to come back. They're very often their business model is, is, you know, right on a knife edge. They just about survive and they survive because of the commitment um, of the people who work for them. This isn't an ordinary job. People go into it for passion uh, to make a difference in their communities. So it's a plea really to make that social investment. And there is going to be another round of dormant assets. We could do it then. You know, if there's another five hundred million pounds. We could make sure the terms of trade uh, are affordable for those people. Um, HCT, who are the biggest transport provider in the community sector, um, have just filed for administration after the pandemic. You know, they've been around 30 years doing community transport in underserved areas and they've had to go to the wall because they can't afford uh, to, to pay the interest rates that are there. So we could do that. Um, I just wanted to give you one um, example um, about how business can collaborate, not just about government. Um, because I've recently um, taken up a project in Barrow. Um, the health inequalities in Barrow are worse than they were in Salford, frankly. 
Um, if you go from one side of Barrow and you take a half an hour's walk to the other side, you go from the, 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 the rich, well, the, nobody's that rich, but you go from the well-off bit in Barrow to the really poor area in Barrow, and you are likely to die 13 years um, earlier in the poorest part of Barrow. It used to be 10 years in Salford, it's actually 13 years in Barrow, and that has not shifted for generations and decades. So what we've done, we've brought together um, what we're calling a health programme board. Uh, we've got the NHS on it, Morecambe Bay Hospitals Trust, which again is quite underfunded and tough. We've got some fantastic, innovative women GPs. It's not just because they're women, but they are amazing. Um, and we've also got BAE Systems. Um, they now have a 50-year pipeline for the submarine programme. I defy you to find another company in the country that's got a 50-year um, pipeline. What they can't get is they can't get talent. They can't get talent to come, they can't get it to stay because all of the infrastructure around that <laughs> South Lakes area um, is really poor. There's no decent pubs, there's no entertainment. Everybody spends their pounds in Windermere or they go to Manchester or they come to Birmingham you know, for <laughs> concerts and for cultural activities. Um, so BAE Systems, very progressive, um, have decided to invest in a health programme. So we're screening um, the, the people who work for BAE finding some pretty scary things around um, alcohol, around uh, diet, um, around cardiovascular issues. Um, they've got a huge amount of people who are on long-term sickness. So again, they're losing productivity in an area that they can ill afford. But what they've decided to do with a bit of pushing uh, is they're not just gonna do it for the workers. They're then gonna do a families program, screening, <coughs> counseling, support, and then we're gonna do a community program. Right? Um, and we have the third sector on the programme board. Not outside looking in, waiting for the things that fall off the table, you know, the crumbs off the table. Absolutely key to policy and strategy making. Incidentally, it is two very bright women, uh, but we've got lots of other people involved. And what we're going to do is when we find out what's wrong with people, we're not going to refer them to the NHS. The NHS is really hard-pressed, can't cope now, let alone um, having a, a huge you know, amount of, of fresh demand. We're going to do world-class social prescribing. <coughs> Arts, music, nature, walking, exercise, tackling loneliness. The number of mental health problems is immense together with alcohol uh, misuse and, and, and increasingly drug misuse. Um, and I'll finish with this. We had our, our meeting last week and we invited the chairman um, of Barrow Raiders. Barrow Raiders is the rugby league football club and the chairman is amazing. Um, and so we're going to do social prescriptions and you can go um, and exercise with the Barrow Raiders um, and have a great time. And that's just an example. But it's innovative and it's bringing together the power of business with a 50-year pipeline that needs that talent um, together with the third sector um, and social investment to enhance that social prescriptions because we can't do that without social investment. And I just wish we were more creative more imaginative, you know, the, the economy is, is still running on very conventional public-private lines. Isn't it time that facing the kind of challenges that we've got, we are prepared to change, to come together, and that everybody does their bit, that they do really well, but they do it um, in, in, a, in a true collaboration that isn't exploitative of one or the other. Everybody gets a benefit. And I just think it's a really exciting challenge for us to be able to do it and doing that with local and regional government can give us a, a really good base and a springboard to make that kind of difference so uh, that's what we're saying to Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful.
thanks very much, Hazel. Yeah, great to have some practical policy ideas and, and some examples as well. One thing that, that struck me listening to, to all of you actually was, um, I can imagine if we'd had this conversation six months ago, um, I'd imagine lots of the things you said there, Hazel, would be very receptive for, for those in government working on levelling up, where it's a very broad agenda focused not just on the economy and growth, but also on you know, well-being, pride in place, health inequalities, and so on. As I mentioned at the start, we don't yet know what levelling up is going to look like now, but it does seem like it's going to be more of a focus on the economic aspect. What, what would your argument be for, for why the social economy is still critical if, we're, if the government's focused on, on growth overall rather than some of those other policy issues? Because I would just say people live in communities. Um, they're not units of economic um, delivery. They're not um, kind of soulless people. They live in places. And actually, you can't make places just by investing money. Um, making places takes um, people, it takes businesses, it takes the social economy uh, to come in and support people. Um, and it needs people who have experience of life. Um, it, it isn't an academic exercise. I mean, you need, you need some you know, rigour in it in, in terms of the intellectual content, but it's not an academic exercise. It's people coming together because they care about the place where they live. And everybody does, even in the toughest places. You know, you can, you can go to Barrow and um, you can go to, to Whitehaven um, in, in, White, you know, in, in the west coast of Cumbria. Um, and there's an estate there, and I, I've um, led their re regeneration program for the last three years. You know, and you've got people at Sellafield with massive wages, five litre cars, three foreign holidays a year. And side by side with that, literally in the same street, you've got the worst health and education outcomes, uh, certainly in the, in the whole of, of, of our county uh, and beyond. And that's people like that. So that's why it's still relevant. It isn't um, an academic, intellectual, economic exercise. That's its underpinnings. The reality of it is it's about people. And that's why you need social investment as well as conventional capital um, and local authority resources coming together and having that kind of rainbow effect um, that, that will be far more effective than just taking a tunnel view um, of providing just, just the public sector money. And it's a similar question to you, how, how does that factor into the way West Midlands Command Authority works? I mean, I think, I think Hazel um, is so eloquent about how that plays out, particularly at that local place level. Um, but I think you could make a similar impassioned arguments about the regional mm. level as well, and about what the West Midlands means to people, what Greater Manchester means to people, what you know the North East means to people. And um, I think you unlock that additional, let's call it social capital, when you actually tap into the enthusiasm and the energy and the loyalty and um, the pride that people bring. That at the moment, with the exception of a few combined authorities like um, West Midlands, um, doesn't have any kind of institutional governance arrangements around it to really then unlock the kind of business growth, the social economy growth that we're talking about here. And I think that's where, um, you know, Westminster Command Authority to some extent is very fortunate in that um, we have got a mayor who clearly champions the region, who clearly works with businesses, who's actually passionate about the social economy agenda as well. Um, again, his background with John Lewis I think is a real key kind of component um, of that um, but the problem is that we could go so much further and we're constantly held back by the fact that um, central government still wants to hang on to the reins and you know I've got a 60 page document here that literally goes through issue by issue including health um, including 
uh, skills and, and so on, so some of those kind of the social infrastructure that you need to unlock growth, um, and explains what we could do more and how we could go further and how that would unlock both the economic growth that this government wants to uh, focus on, um, but also then the wider um, social uh, growth that I think is, is also absolutely key for uh, regions like the West Midlands. So, you know, I think to, to, to recognise that as human beings we relate to different spatial scales and we particularly relate to our local places and our regions is something that I think um, central government really needs to get its head around much more effectively. And if we look overseas, you know, um, as I said uh, in my initial comments, we are by far the most centralised um, developed nation um, uh, in the OECD uh, and it's by unlocking that regional growth um, that I think we see um, other countries actually forging ahead in terms of their productivity and their, their, their economic growth. So if the government does want to really push ahead with growth, 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 then actually unlocking the power of regions is, is, is going to be critical. Oh, thanks very much, Ed. And Sarah, you've heard lots of talk about the importance of, of devolution, and you mentioned that Staffordshire is sort of sitting in between the, the combined authority regions. Is it harder to build those sort of collaborations between government, social economy, uh, business as well, wh where there isn't that, that same uh, local government infrastructure? Um, yeah, I think it is actually. And I think the other bit really is um, without someone like a, a mayor leading it or, or, or a combined authority, uh, it's one of those issues that gets lost because there are so many other things that have to be tackled. Um, and I think it, it does need some sort of uh, champion in the, I hate that word, but you know what I mean? It needs somebody, it needs an organisation, it needs a, a range of partners who are really going to take this on and drive it forward. Um, uh, we've been working with um, uh, Social Enterprise UK about actually reinvigorating Staffordshire as a social enterprise place okay. to try and get partners back together again. Um, and we're working with a number of um, uh, social and voluntary sector organisations to try and work out how the Chamber can be part of that leading group because it does need to be the private sector and the voluntary sector. And I think that it, the more the sectors can come together, the greater who, who, who are completely and utterly rooted in place. I mean, Staffordshire Chamber has been there for 200 years. We're not going anywhere. Um, and we can't go anywhere else. So we really, really want to work with those businesses and those organisations who feel the same. Um, and that means that cap cap encapsulating that sense of community. I'd just like to also comment on a point that you made about finance, because I think one of the issues as well is that we find is that what a lot of our businesses need is not very much money mm. to make a sub substantial difference. The banks won't lend on small amounts of money. Actually, it's somewhere where social, imp uh, social uh, impact investing could really help. Um, with, with the demise of things like Funding Circle, we're finding that businesses are now really, really struggling with trying to get just a few tens of thousands of pounds that would really, really help them. And they may be lumped with um, Beevil's and Siebel's debt. Uh, we are facing a real issue at the moment about how businesses can start to work, at, work their way out of that at the moment. And if we start to lose some of those smaller local companies, those mid-sized businesses, then I think places like Staffordshire will really suffer. Um, and that partnership that we're building up um, around place will also suffer. So I think there is a bit about finance and access to finance and the government to stop, it's, you know, bigger institutions talk to big institutions, which is why I support devolution, because it's still a big institution, but it's smaller than, than, than government. Um, and we really need government to focus on what is needed about how they can get the best support to SMEs that then can work with the social enterprise sector to support the communities. And that isn't a big scheme, it's not an investment zone or anything like that, it's actually some really 
basic things that need to be done at a place-based level, which I think is what the um, West Midlands Combined Authority, even though we're not part of it, do so well. <laughs> you, you are non-constituent members. Yes, we're non-constituent so, members. So, uh, yeah. and still have a place at the table from that point of view. But let's just take a particular example, because I think Hazel raised it, and I think it's probably worth just elaborating a little bit. And this dormant assets fund, yeah. um, which I know government is consulting on at the moment, mm -hmm. so it makes it particularly um, timely. Now, there's different ways in which government could unlock that dormant assets fund. Um, it's chosen historically to give chunks to the different devolved nations. Um, I would make a case that it should um, carve up the dormant assets fund in England against different combined authorities, because then we'd be able to look at um, how um, the social economy in the West Midlands is operating. We've done quite a lot of research on it. We've, we've got um, a social economy investment plan for the West, West Midlands that we could, uh, we could you know, work with government to say this is how it will unlock the social economy in the West Midlands. But if it goes down the route, as I think it probably will choose to, of, of um, big, big national programmes on particular themes or particular issues, then it's highly unlikely that we'll be able to tailor um, those funds to the particular type of social economy and in particular these clusters that we've got. So we've begun to identify uh, social enterprises around Dudley, around Walsall, East Birmingham um, and Coventry that, that have a particular character. They have particular relationships between those social enterprise businesses. Now we could support those much more effectively if that funding was devolved to us and we were able to then work with our local authority and social economy partners uh, through our social economy virtual team that we have in order to unlock. So, so, so it's, it's, it's an example where you know, I think the temptation on government's part would be to announce a big national dormant assets programme for England rather than um, looking at how that could be used point. much Very more effectively at and, the regional uh, level. And just yeah. also on, on that, I mean, one of the things that worries me a little bit is, um, a lot actually, uh, is about the fact that nobody seems to have mapped what's going to happen when the um, European funding ceases at middle of next year mm -hmm. and what organisations are so reliant and don't actually have the capacity at the moment to think about how they can do that. And I think the West Midland Combined Authority are doing something about supporting the social enterprise sector to look at all of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that is a really big issue because all of the infrastructure on which we have relied for the past... 15 years could disappear in the middle of next year um, and without really any sort of plan or understanding about what that will mean to some of the most um, vulnerable people in our communities. And we might bring that responses to that in questions but I'm keen to, to go to you we've been talking for long enough so please do raise your hands if you have a question I'll try and take a few at a time so there's the lady at the back just there and then the gentleman uh, in the black coat just here. Hello um Hello, I'm Marikel Temming from Civil Engineering Contractors Association. Thank you for today. Just a question. I know we're in sort of a really challenging times and there's obviously details awaiting on levelling up funding, but how do we maintain the, the momentum for the business case to invest in the roads and railways and utilities that we need to support the social value of levelling up and in, you know, have better homes, better businesses, better communities? Thank you. Great, thank you very much. And then yeah, just a gentleman here. Yeah, good morning. Yeah. Um, my name is Peter Udale. I'm a director of Responsible Finance, which is the industry body for community development finance institutions. Um, and I was just, just going to ask, in terms of partnership, we're, we're, we're partnering, uh, our members are already partnering um, in, in Manchester and also in Birmingham and delivering funding to small businesses where there can be a real impact. Um, and I'm just wondering whether 
you see a bigger role for that, that type of uh, relationship going forward. Great. I'll just take one more, to, uh, just down the front here. I just went on procurement. It's really interesting to bring up the Social Value Act, and I had the pleasure of working with Chris White on that. God, too long ago now when, <laughs> I, when I think about it. Having gone from that sort of advisory role to running a small social enterprise, it's interesting how I view the question now or how I see it perceived as being marked. So that kind of idea of bringing creativity and imagination of how you bring social value, when you put it in a formal procurement context, I believe feels quite tick boxy. So how do you say the right things to get the marks as opposed to how do you bring real creativity to the process? Um, and it's like we score really poorly when I do it without, you know, when I put creativity into it. So, uh, Excellent. So just to say, Paul Scully is on his way. He will be here shortly. Um, but uh, so Ed, feel free to take any, any or all of those questions. We'll just kind of go down the line. And I mean, I think just, just, I'll just go in reverse order. Yep. But, but that last question, I think, is absolutely right. One of the things that I've been looking at within the West Midlands Combined Authority is our existing social value framework, which I think has become a bit tick boxy, if I'm perfectly honest. Uh, in this forum, and so therefore we're refreshing it and saying, you know, what does it look like? How, how do we actually uh, re-enliven that? Because I kind of we lost the principle of it. Because we're just we're just doing the doing doing the tick box. So I think that's I think it's a very good point. I think that does apply in many places that I've I've, I've seen um, across the public sector. Um, obviously, I think there is a role for um, more social investment and social investment finance. We've got uh, we're about to go out to tender actually for. Uh, to design a West Midlands um, social economy investment fund. Um, we're trying to uh, think very creatively about how we pull that fund um, together. So uh, again, uh, I think that's, that, that's key and we're very keen to hear from partners, no doubt in the room, as to, as to, to work with us um, on that. Uh, Power to Change have been particularly supportive in that, in that space, so that's, that's been really positive and they're seconding someone to us actually to, to work with us on this. So, so that's really, really helpful um, as well. Um, and then on sort of road, rail, utilities, I mean, huge financial pressures, uh, particularly on our uh, transport system, West Midlands, um, Transport West Midlands, um, you know, is really struggling to get patronage back up to where it was pre-COVID. That has huge knock-on financial implications. Um, yes, we've had a billion pounds uh, CRSTS settlement with uh, Department for Transport, uh, which is great, but again, Department for Transport are fiddling all over the detail of that, exactly where should a bus stop go in Sutton Coldfield and so on and so forth. Uh, so, so, you know, there's still some real, real issues as to exactly how we can unlock that, um, uh, that road system. The other thing I'd mention is uh, energy and digital. I think we very often talk about roads uh, when we, uh, and we talk about transport, when we think about what do we need to unlock for business. Um, by way of uh, you know, at a regional or local level. Um, critically now, energy is absolutely key. Again, the West Midlands has got some really, really uh, smart energy. We've done some fantastic innovation around smart energy distribution um, and storage, which, which I do think is nationally um, pioneering and significant, but we need further R&D, we need further investment going into that. That will actually bring down everybody's bills, if you see what I mean, because um, they, they won't have such high network costs and, and so on. And again, I think the government policy of just focusing exclusively on supplying energy and how do we increase supply and increase supply and increase supply actually uh, doesn't help when we then try and think about well, how do we actually uh, manage our energy. So energy infrastructure 
not just retrofit and energy efficiency, but energy infrastructure is really key uh, to that. And similarly, digital. Um, you know, digital infrastructure is another area uh, where uh, we, um, you, you, you might be surprised to know, but we have uh, quite a lot of not spots across the West Midlands. So some areas are absolutely fantastic. Um, but of course, the <coughs> emphasis now from government is very much on rural areas and how do we get rural broadband? Well, of course, rural broadband's fundamentally important, but um, if we want to level up our neighbourhoods and our communities, then it's very often the businesses in the residential areas in our poorest neighbourhoods that still don't have the right connectivity that they need. So um, big, big issues there around that infrastructure piece. Okay. Anything you'd like to add to that? Um, yeah. Uh, in terms of the infrastructure, I'd be looking at pensions for purpose. Um, I was on the co-op board for um, five, six years, and um, I was banging this drum all the time because, obviously, the, the pension fund, um, its beneficiaries are mainly people who live in Greater Manchester. Um, and um, I managed to persuade them to commit to taking £100 million out um, and investing it in affordable housing. I think they've done £20 million so far in terms of that tranche. Um, and they actually asked all the members of the pension fund um, what they thought about it and consulted with them properly as a co-op would um, and it was overwhelming um, you know the support that came back they said well you know our kids can't get a foot on the housing ladder uh, why wouldn't we want our pension to be used for affordable housing so you know our families can actually get a decent start so I think that that whole pensions for purpose um, stuff it's beginning to happen there's some big regeneration projects in Kent and different parts of the country um, but I think it's a really tapped resource um, that could be used. Um, in terms of the um, the tick box stuff on social value, it can be like that, but actually if you've trained your procurement people properly, um, then they're not going to accept a kind of um, tick box boring kind of thing. The whole purpose of the Act was that you went out before the contract to consult with the community and say, what are your priorities? What would you like to see happen in this area? And, you know, local people will come up with you know, things that surprise you that you've never uh, really thought of because they're living that life day to day. So there had to be a pre-contractual um, um, process, and that now I don't think happens anywhere near enough uh, before you even get that, there. Angel, so but part of the reason for that is because so often the funding tranches that we receive from government are such short term, are so short term, so we have to deliver the project so quickly in such a small that you don't actually have the time to go out and do that pre-procurement. I'm not saying that's an excuse, but that is... But you know, that's part of the problem. It, it, it's part of the problem, um, but actually when you've got organisations like we have with the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority and yeah. Sellafield and BAE, these are long-term yeah. organisations. There's no excuse for them not to go out and actually be creative around this. The second thing on that is how do we measure it? You know, I think we've got to a position sometimes where it's two apprentices and three of this and four of, the, four of that. I mean, that is ridiculous. Um, if you look at the Green Book, the Treasury Green Book, that measures government investment uh, by, by well-being, quality of life and well-being. Now, you might think that's nebulous and it's very difficult to measure, but it's not. There's a huge amount of academic work around um, how do you... You should be measuring what is the change we've made, not two of this and three of them and that kind of um, numbers game... And, 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 you know, the, it, it's a very nascent industry, if you like, because social value is quite new. Therefore, the people who measure and report on it, it can be quite mechanistic. I think we have a job of work to do to make that much more um, textural um, and, and relevant to the communities that, that, that are being served around that. And the CDFIs, yes, there will always be a role uh, for CDFIs because that's what we do uh, in social investment business. And all of those relationships are crucial um, to delivery because people who are um, far away from the people 
people who are affected are not necessarily going to be the right people um, to, to make the financial products and to make the delivery that's relevant to those communities. Great. And very briefly. Very briefly. Okay. Uh, yes to roads and rail, absolutely. Uh, it's fundamental and we can't lose sight of how important that is. Um, uh, I would also agree with Ed that one of the biggest issues that we found at the moment is the lack of investment in the grid systems. Uh, we have businesses who are desperate to do um, renewable energy but can't act, the grid can't take the load. So we've got millions of pounds sitting there in private businesses who want to do something about all of this and we haven't got the infrastructure that will take it, nor any indication that we're going to get that. So yes, I think that is a really big thing. I'm really pleased also to announce that I've now found the department in the Department of Transport that deal with freight after searching for them for about 20 years. But, um, uh, but, for, but the, use of, uh, the issues around freight are also important and we, uh, often the agenda is driven by passenger transport and we yeah. need to talk about business as well. Second point around, um, yes, please, come and talk to me. I'd love to. Um, I think there's some really good ideas about how we could actually look at working with businesses around responsible finance, and I'd be really interested in that. I think it would fit with some of the things that we're already doing. And the third point was dormant um, uh, uh, social value. Yes, but what I would really like to see is um, local authorities having a budget for social value. So that, you know, this year we're mainly concentrating on obesity. Yep. Let's really drive it down. Let's have a concentrated effort. Social value at the moment has been given the sort of tick box, but also the little bits. So it never adds up to very much uh, consistently. And so I think that would be really important. And, um, and I would be remiss if I didn't uh, also say that I think that one of the ways that it can be measured and changed um, is to change the way that accountancy works. But I'm more than happy to take questions on that later. Thanks very much, Sarah. And, and thank, you, thank you, Paul. Thank you very much for run, running over here. Um, so, sorry to not give you a chance to catch your breath, but now is an opportune moment to go to you. We've been having a great discussion about uh, the role of government to collaborate with business and the social economy in levelling up. We're really here to keep from you, hear from you a little bit more about uh, where the government's plans to go on this. Fantastic. Okay. No. Well, thank you so much. And uh, this is where I probably say something that you say you've already covered already, or challenged me, or whatever. But hey, let's have a go. Um, I think there's a lot being said over the last couple of days about levelling up, about whether it's still on the agenda, is it, is it disappearing or anything like that. No, it's not. Absolutely it's not. Um, you know, I am in the, in, in the department for levelling up. It's still got the title there and, uh, uh, and that will be remaining because it's so important that we get this right. Um, we've had uh, what David Cameron had his big society, Theresa May had a burning injustices and Boris had levelling up and we've not actually finished any one of them. Uh, I don't think you'll ever finish it because it's, it's an ongoing process, but we, we don't need another philosophy. We just need to crack on and deliver. And so you see a government in a hurry at the moment uh, to really take up the, the slack of the two and a half years that was caused by the COVID pandemic and the, and the war in Ukraine. So we've got to deliver on our 2019 manifesto whilst delivering on our promises to support people through this situation. But levelling up absolutely remains at the heart of exactly doing that. And so in order to do so, looking at the, you know, the subject matter that we're talking about, how you, how you get businesses and uh, the social economy and, and, and third sector involved, well, let me cover businesses first, because again, you, you, I hope you've seen the, the drive for that with the investment zones announcement. There's a really good example. I've just come from uh, the Thames Estuary um, event around the corner, where there's a really good way that uh, you see businesses already collaborating, already using their partnerships, uh, not just in the Thames Estuary, but in Teesside as well, because of the different types of hydrogen strategy that are being developed. How can they interlock together? So government doesn't need to get involved beyond rolling the pitch and setting out 
the, the vision and then stripping back the processes in planning, for example, whilst giving ta tax breaks, that allows the businesses then to go and do what they do best and will continue to collaborate because it is the interconnection that's so, so important. Another example of that was when I went to Ebbsfleet just last week. You look at Ebbsfleet, um, they've been, uh, had the Ebbsfleet Development Corporation for a good few years now. They're trying to build 15,000 homes. I think they're up to 3,000 at the moment. They've got all the big volume house builders in there. And it's going okay, but it can be turbocharged. How do you do that? You put, uh, have, they're proposing an investment zone in the middle of it, and one of their um, sections in the middle, where they want to build a uh, commercial and, and, and attract some, some decent businesses in there who can then employ the people living around in those homes. But secondly, obviously, the corollary of that is people, when businesses invest in an area, they want to make sure it's not just um, great tax conditions, but it's good for their staff as well. And to do that, you need homes, you need parks, you need schools, you need hospitals and GP surgeries. So that's, that sort of um, garden town that they're building in, in Ebbsfleet can be kick-started by bringing the commercial, the, the businesses in now to, to, to drive that um, impetus for house building. Um, by doing that, you then also uh, go, they can they can rightly go back to Eurostar and say you know you stopped coming stopping at Ebbsfleet come back look at what we're doing here 18 minutes into King's Cross really easy to get to Paris but we've also got a centre of excellence here in the middle of Ebbsfleet so you've got a market driven cycle that, that that can be really benefiting by by investment zones but you can't do any, I start talking about the big society you can't do any of this unless you've got a cohesive society backing. Uh, that and that's why the third sector is so important delivering it with the uh, um, and, and faith groups I was um, uh, launched the faith new deal um, in, in, over the summer where we can see how faith groups through COVID were really leaning into their communities and we want to learn uh, more about how we can tighten up the relationship between faith groups uh, in, in their working with national government, with local government, but also with NHS boards and, uh, and the police and uh, DWP and other services as well. It's got to be tight because that's how you get that cohesive solution that's then a sustainable lasting solution rather than just a one hit wonder and creating sort of some soulless dormitory towns or something like that. Great. I'm just going to say a couple more questions and then, so we're running out of time, and then you can use your opportunity <laughs> to speak both to, to respond to Paul and to answer questions. So hands up who's still got a question. Um, great, well, the, the lady just over there. Uh, <coughs> thank you, Geese and Ander from uh, Metropolitan Thames Valley Housing Association. In, um, in London, we've got some of the biggest um, social challenges. Um, whilst we have great infrastructure and we have great um, you know, entertainment business, all the rest of it. So, but we have high levels of child poverty and great inequality. So, how can we ensure that uh, London is part of the conversation in levelling up, but also that the lessons are learnt that it's not always just about the physical, but more about the social and the inequalities that there are. Great. And then just the gentleman over here. Uh, good morning, it's Kevin Armstrong from Unlimited, the Foundation for Social Entrepreneurs. Um, dominant assets has been mentioned repeatedly and just wanted to quickly make sure that everyone in the room knows that the consultation closes this Sunday. <laughs> so it's really important that everyone gets to the website communityenterprise.uk and gets their uh, response in. 
but of course we mustn't just rely on dominant assets to make sure that there's equitable uh, enterprise-centric uh, investment available to social entrepreneurs across the country. I'd love to hear the panel's thoughts on how effective the UK Shared Prosperity Fund has been so far in meaningfully engaging social entrepreneurs in investment bids as it's supposed to and whether uh, the Minister would be interested in working with sector organisations like Unlimited to make sure that that engagement is as, a, as effective as possible in the future. Thank you. Great, thank you very much. So Ed, come to you first. Any thoughts maybe on investment zones, whether the West Midlands is going to be getting its own investment zone, and then also thoughts on, on uh, social challenges in London and the UK SPF? Yeah, so I think I can um, assure you and the Minister that uh, we have a team of people who are working their socks off this week uh, to get their expression of interest in around um, investment zones. Um, and I think we've got some really exciting opportunities, four or five in the West Midlands, that can do precisely the kind of things that Paul has, has talked about, and uh, they will be uh, part of our pitch. But I think I'd want to place investment zones in the context of our wider trailblazer devolution deal. Um, in two ways. First of all, I think that if we focus too narrowly on a small number of sites where we're trying to unlock planning restrictions and provide tax incentives, we might miss some of the wider um, spin-out opportunities that there are in slightly wider geographical areas. So, for example, East Birmingham and North Solihull um, have probably got two or three sites within them, um, but will have uh, a much, much uh, bigger prize, if you like, if we can unlock some of the skills development, for example, in East Birmingham, if we can unlock some of the public service reform that we think could happen, and that currently isn't part of the thinking, if you like, behind investment zones. Um, and so I think there's a case that we need to make as to how the specific proposals for investment zone sites play out into a wider regeneration narrative for bigger bigger areas. So I think that's and then more broadly, as I keep flapping around, we've got our Trailblazer Devolution Deal prospectus where we've got um, you know another 30 or so proposals that we think need to go into that wider devolution um, deal. Um, in relation to UK SPF, um, I think it's fair to say that it's incredibly challenging for us as a combined authority. Um, by I think fairly good objective calculations, we will have 40% less funding now than we had in the various European pots that preceded UK SPF. So that means some really tricky decisions as to exactly how we and our local authority partners are going to be able to use um, that funding um, effectively. And um, my personal concern, and particularly in this context, is the extent to which our voluntary community social enterprise partners will have the uh, gumption and uh, and and drive and sharp elbows to be able to compete with other partners um, who uh, who will be uh, also trying to uh, sort of get their hands on what is actually an incredibly limited pot. So I think there's some real, real challenges there. But once again, with an element of fiscal devolution, which is part of our trailblazer devolution proposals, we think we can actually unlock more resource for the region that would actually mean that we could mitigate uh, some of the ways in which we're currently being challenged to use UK SPF. For example, uh, a different kind of skills settlement, a different kind of careers settlement with key government departments might mean that some of the funding that's currently allocated or needs to be allocated via UK SPF could be unlocked through different means that would then leave more in the pot for um, social economy um, players. Great. 
Hazel, in, in 90 seconds yeah. if possible. I'm just going to repeat the three things that I said to this meeting <laughs> um, that I wanted to say to you. So I'm delighted that you've been able to join us. Uh, three things that you could do as policy that would make a difference. First of all, to make social value mainstream. It's here to stay. Um, whatever various people have said about it, it's producing um, millions and millions of pounds for community investment mm. uh, from big companies. Um, I work with the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority, with BAE Systems. They're desperate to do um, social impact through social value and their procurement. So please, let's, let's just make it the way we do our business, and then it becomes embedded mm. in the system. Uh, the second thing, incentivise public, private and social capital coming together for placemaking. Um, the Impact Investing Institute has led um, a whole series of projects across the country. And when you get, you know, conventional capital now is desperate to find places to put its money in mm. to get ESG. Mm. There's not enough things going on for it to do that investment to take back to its board and say, look, mm. look at our ESG uh, figures around that. And the final thing is, please, please, when we do the next tranche of Dorland assets, can we make that social investment affordable? Um, because it has done some good stuff, but the rate at which you have to pay it back for many, um, you know, perhaps small social enterprises and community organisations, the interest rates are just, it's just not possible uh, for them to be able to do that. Um, and, and so if, if we were, were able to do those three things, I think that, you know, it's not a huge policy agenda, um, but it would make quite a significant difference. Um, and from social investment business, we would love to come and talk to you um, about those issues, perhaps in greater detail. So um, I'm, I'm not being cruel to you, but I'm saying it in a meeting. It would be lovely if we could come and talk to you about it. <laughs> and he's nodding. He's, he's nodding. nodding. <laughs> for, for the tape. Uh, what she said. Um, and just a couple of other bits. Uh, UK SPF it has the potential to be brilliant, but because it's layering on top of a number of different other schemes at the moment and is being done at such a local level also has the potential to be disastrous mm. um, and I think it needs a little bit of tweaking and understanding about who's spending money on what and why um, but hopefully that that will come we've talked quite a lot about the uh, importance of, of the investment in things like energy infrastructure um, so not just the supply side mm. but also how it gets to people and how they can use it so um, there was quite a bit around all of that and then I can't really read my notes, as you can see, <laughs> um, because they're all over the place at the moment. Um, but uh, the other bit around, um, we talked quite a lot about procurement and the Social Value Act. Mm. The plea also about that is contract management, because it's fine to have them in there, but if it's not managed effectively, yeah, yeah. then it's actually, it's, it's a, it is a tick box exercise. Yeah, sure. And Paul, I'll give you the last word, and perhaps you could pick up the pick question up on, on questions London, as, as, as yeah. Minister for London. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look, um, so MVTH, uh, I mean, obviously, you've got, you've got um, Worcester Park, the Hamptons in Worcester Park, in my area, we speak regularly. Uh, you're right, absolutely right about inequalities and levelling up. First of all, get your head around levelling up being about people. Start with people and then move into Absolutely. geography and infrastructure, quickly comes into geography and infrastructure. But it's, so that's why the social values that you're talking about are absolutely integral to, to levelling up, but often, I suppose it's because I've just come from Bayes and then you know, come into this and, uh, and the investment zones is, you know, is the talk, then it's been a lot about business, but you don't get that unless you get the social value right and tackling those inequalities. I've just, again, actually tackling the inequalities, Barking and Dagenham and, uh, and Newham are very much at the heart of the levelling up in London uh, and Thames Estuary, the, the things that I was just talking about there, Barking and Dagenham's right there. There's so much work that, 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 that you get that bit right, it really has that reflection in tapping some of the inequalities in, in places like Barking and Dagenham. You can do that around the, uh, around the country. The two questions around 
the Share Prosperity Fund, I will I will take back and report it to Deanna Davidson, who's specifically looking after that. But actually, looking at talking about social enterprises, um, again with my former Bayes hat on, I'm really really uh, in favour of doing more with social enterprises because I think it's just it, it's uh, they're not well understood um, from 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 a business point of view and a government point of view about really the, the variety, the scale the, of, of the spectrum of social enterprises uh, and there's the, the power that they have is, is immense so I'd love to work with you on that. Um, Hazel, yeah, let's meet. Yeah, definitely. Let's let's let, let's go through these sort of things. Uh, I was just going to say, I am a community activist now. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I am trying to bring I'll back... Meet, I'll meet you in whatever form, yeah. <laughs> I am trying to bring back the Art Deco Lido in Grange over Sands, where I now live. Right. Um, and we've got a fantastic group. But we, we did look at the Shared Prosperity Fund, um, and it was much more about feasibility studies yeah. um, rather than actually doing something. Um, so, um, you know, obviously we do need feasibility, um, but um, if we can bring back the Art Deco Lido, then it will be an amazing thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, that might be a bit, a bit, bit niche for me. To start, but in terms of this, but you, you started talking about social value, and again, yeah. I, I was uh, Postal Affairs Minister for two and a half years, and um, whether I was trying to tackle the Horizon scandal and also the future of the post office, see what we're doing, we kept coming time and time again. Uh, about the, the drivers for the funding of the post office that um, was all about economic value. Yeah. But clearly the post office is so much more than, than economic value because yeah. otherwise it's just an unsustainable business Absolutely. because of the social value. Yeah. And so I'm not going to be, uh, well I'm not, no longer the Minister for Post Affairs, but I'm not going to be that minister that's going to tell someone in a rural area, sorry, your post office just doesn't add up anymore. Yeah. Um, we've got to make it work. And so that I did leave the, the base with them reviewing the future of the post office to do exactly that. So social value, you can't measure everything in pounds and pence, basically is what I'm yeah. coming to. And so uh, we've got to, uh, to recognise that when, we, when we're taking on all of this. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Thank you to all my panellists. I'm sorry to those of you whose questions we didn't get to. We could have gone on for, for at least half an hour, possibly hours, hours longer. Please do come up and, and speak to the panel um, afterwards if we didn't get to answer your question. Um, but yeah, I think it's been, it's been a really interesting discussion. Um, thank you to all of my panellists. And I'd just like to say there's lots of IFG events coming uh, for the rest of uh, the next couple of days. The next one is actually myself and Paul again uh, at 3.30, at 3 <laughs> levelling up or left behind what role should regulators play. So do, do please come along to that and ch check out our events programme. But just uh, let's finish by thanking Social Investment Business for uh, making this event possible and also thanking our speakers in the usual way.